I remember I even read a French writer about the people who promoted Hinduism at the beginning of the century and he was not happy about them. He said that they are trying to make things easy, things which are much more subtle and difficult to understand and they pretend that it is easy. So he thought that because it was Hinduism, they pretended that some ultimate aspect of our nature, some ultimate aspect of the truth, could suddenly be easy to understand. So there are certain aspects that one cannot avoid and one cannot oversimplify. I was watching a video of Jung, the psychoanalyst, Swiss psychoanalyst, when he went to New Mexico quite many years ago and he visited the Indian village there and he had a beautiful relationship with the people. He was listening to what they were saying, listening to their vision of the world in a very attentive way, not just as if their vision was a weird vision or a fashion, but if their vision of the world was just another possibility, as true as our scientific view of the world would be. So his careful way of listening helped with a beautiful relationship with those Indians. And the chief explained that every morning they made a ritual for the sun to rise. And they were very concerned because they thought that if some people, nobody knows anymore to make this ritual, so what would happen for the planet, for the earth, if nobody knows anymore how to make the sun rise in the morning? So we may imagine the sense of responsibility that those people may have had and that in the morning nobody would forget to get up. Otherwise it will be of course be very serious, there will be serious consequences that did not make the ritual in the morning. Their life certainly had a meaning and a direction. A few centuries ago, many slaves were brought from Benin to Brazil. And many, many people died in the boat, bringing the slaves from Benin to Brazil. It is said that one third of the slaves died on the boat, one third died just reaching Brazil, and only one third of the slave brought could be used to work in the field. And the master to being able to handle the slaves, they disperses the families so that there will be no mother and children together, no husband and wife together, so they really break all the family bond that they could see. They came with nothing, the slaves, hardly any clothes on them, but their mind was not empty. What they brought with them were their beliefs and their gods that the slave, the master, could not take away from them. 
So when they went in the farm to work there, they were obliged to accept the Christian faith. And in order to continue their cult, the African slave, they buried underneath the earth quatinias, which were like vase, containing the symbol of their gods. They buried them under the earth. And they put the statue of the Christian saint in the table in front of them. So they will make prostration to the Christian saint. But actually their forehead was always touching the floor, the ground, the earth, where they had buried the, the gods, or each other they called them. So they did not come with um, no culture or no tradition. They had beliefs, and those beliefs helped them to survive. They gather with new family bonds, the families of the gods. So they were the people connected to Shango, the god of thunder. And there were people connected to Ogum, the god of war. And there were people connected to Oshala, the god of light and wisdom. And many there had, I think, 200 or 400 gods. And they got new link between them, and that helped them to survive. And those killed three centuries later, they are still practiced in Brazil, strangely enough, not only by black people, but also by white people. So in this cult, they will receive, the gods will come in the adept and then speak to the mouth. So people can go and really meet the gods. The gods do not stay just as a statue, but the gods will speak to their dead. And there are nowadays some street children in Brazil who every week will go in these temples and then they will meet one god. So they maybe uh, they don't maybe they don't have any more parents. But suddenly they find a link because every week they go and meet this god, this god who would speak to them and then start to be like their father or mother. And in the gods that the adepts are receiving, there are some which are called the, the old black ones, and they look like a very old grandmother or very old grandfather. And when they come usually into uh, an adept, then the adept suddenly walk like if he was 2,000 years old, and he look at the people like if they were his grand-grand-grandchildren. So the small children from the street, they come there, and then they feel a new family bond, rather than being left alone in the street. Of course, we may question those beliefs, those of the Indians, like those of the slaves. But we may see that their life had a meaning, and their life had a direction. And that may help them, it helped them really to go through so many difficulties. Maybe in our society, we don't have such a belief, but we may not have so much aim in our life and not so much direction. And for some of us, it is very difficult. There is a sense of disorientation. To be in life without any clear direction, without any clear meaning, we have been skillful in questioning so much our values, but it doesn't seem that we've been so skillful in bringing new values with so much power to be able to help us to face the difficulty of life. 
some of us may have looked in different directions for orientation and may have found in Buddhism some orientation in some direction or maybe in some other religion when one starts to learn Buddhism then one sees the description of suffering seems to be quite precise and we may recognize ourselves in this condition and then we learn a little bit more and not only do we get a description about suffering we also get a description of the cause of suffering and even the possibility of a cessation of all suffering and finally a path to go a path which will lead to the cessation of suffering which is called Nirvana so we may believe then we have now also found a direction, an orientation now we also have found an aim which is the cessation of all suffering cessation which is called Nirvana or the unconditioned or the unborn so having a clear having a clear aim in mind we may start to practice maybe sitting peacefully not being so much concerned anymore with outer objects, outer phenomena what can be heard and seen, taste all the different sense experience we don't attach so much importance anymore and the mind becomes quieter then we may also not be so much interested in the contents of our thoughts the mind gets also quieter and we may develop awareness in our meditation not so much of the experience but just the quality which allows those experiences to appear therefore among the different experiences arising like thoughts or perception, bodily sensation or sounds which may still arise even if we don't look for them then not being so much interested in them but rather in the quality of knowing which allow the knowing of them, the perception of them, the experience of them. So slowly all the contents lose their importance. And finally within each experience what seems to remain is just the sense of knowing, knowing whatever the experience is. A thought, an emotion, perception, then they all seems to have a similar quality of just knowing that we may call awareness or we may call presence and just relating to that not even the sense of an observer is still has still this quality of knowing when we relate just to this quality of knowing or of presence therefore the characteristic of the observer also disappears and what slowly will remain is just a vast sense of presence without any split, without any fragmentation there will be no sense of an experiencer and something which is experienced there will be just a vast sense of presence, awareness, limitless without any content, 
without any center or limited, without any sense of lack, nothing is lacking. There is rather a sense of fulfillment, of completeness, since it has no limitation, no boundaries, so there could be no sense of something lacking. And this may be experienced with a sense of pleasure, happiness. Just a pure sense of presence or awareness. No content, but a sense of happiness. At this time one doesn't see the possibility of problem, since the only thing which seems to be experienced is just this vast sense of presence. Nothing could come into it and be not, not participating to this sense of presence. Because everything which has arisen, we have seen that it's just made of this quality of presence or awareness. So one may wonder when there is no sense of duality, of bondage, of limitation, if finally was and reached the end that we had seen at the beginning of the past that where we like to go to a state of limitlessness, to a state of freedom, to a state of emptiness of content. And if we abide in such a state, then we may be very protective about it fearing that something could come like distraction or big noise and suddenly taking us outside of this experience. Therefore, we'll be very protective of that. So this need for protection, so it's like if we have found a beautiful treasure, but now we need to protect it. Like if a man has really found a beautiful treasure, very fine, so he's very happy, but now he's spending day and night protecting the treasure. So maybe he's rich, but he's not really free, because he needs to protect it so much that he spends all his day and night protecting what he has found. So this beautiful state may need protection, and we may see that it's depending. It is depending on no distraction arising there, in this state, that one would not be carried away by thought, one would not be carried away by emotion, by pleasure. So this state is very much conditioned by so many qualities which are required. This state, in order to abide, should be protected, there should be no distraction, nothing arising in it. And we see that he, it is at the end of a processes which did take time bringing to that space or that experience. So we see that it is not unconditioned, it is not unborn, but it is very much conditioned. So if we had set up an aim to start with, which was the unconditioned, the unborn, that cannot be it because that is condition made depending on much cause and condition. So if we want to reach an unconditioned aim, so what is there to be done then? Something which will not be depending on cause, not depending on the cultivation of something 
and which will not be the outcome of some practice. We may see that any practice, the accumulation of causes leading to something, would necessarily lead to something which is conditioned by the causes that we are accumulating to reach there. Therefore, the cultivation of any path, of any causes, condition, cannot lead to something which is unconditioned. That is not possible. Something which will be reached depending on cause and condition cannot be unborn, cannot be unconditioned. So whatever we may try to do, as long as we are doing something, this will be a causal way, and that will never lead, bring us to an unconditioned state. That is not possible. Unless we are making this unconditioned, very conditioned, which of course doesn't make sense. So if we are doing something, then we cannot reach to the unconditioned or to the unborn. Now if we don't do anything, which many of us have tried, or just keep doing whatever we are doing, that doesn't seem to help either. So doing something very much oriented doesn't, cannot lead to the unconditioned. And doing something or not doing any specific action doesn't seem to help and lead somewhere either. So what other choice is there than doing something or not doing anything? So it seems that if really the unconditioned, the unborn, is the aim of the Buddhist path, then it cannot be true. Because the unborn and the unconditioned can never be the aim of the path. So we may wonder if that, that the Buddhist tradition is quite strange and plays as an aim something which is not true. And therefore we are completely mistaken when we follow a path and we practice meditation believing that could lead to a state of freedom. So does it mean that all those great teachers of the past with so beautiful smile and which seems to we can hear so many beautiful stories about them, does it mean that they were mistaken? So it is very important to question when we are practicing with so much diligence from morning till evening, if really does make sense. So the way to look at the past and the aim that I have just been followed, following is a way that is starting from the unconditioned point of view. We start from the, uncon- from the, sorry, from the conditioned point of view, from the causality point of view, and we try to see if by some kind of possibilities, at the end of cause and condition, something which is unconditioned could appear. But we see that it is not possible. It is not possible that by cause and condition something which is unconditioned could be real. Now if we believe that there must be some kind of affinity between the past and the end, 
that there may be, may be some kind of similarities. We may wonder if we were to look at the past and the end from the unconditioned point of view. So not from the starting, if you wish, but from the end. So this end being unconditioned, unborn, if the past is to be with some affinity with that, it means that the past need also to be unborn and unconditioned. Only a past which will be not conditioned may have some affinity with an unconditioned aim. So what would it mean an unconditioned past, an unconditioned practice? Practice, of course, which does not bring causality, a practice which does not exist in time. And that's exactly what we are looking for. So now we say, that's fine, let's go there. I want to practice the unconditioned, because that's much more fun than to practice the conditioned. So I want to practice freedom rather than practice bondage. But how to make this leap from our state, which seems to be conditioned, how to make this leap to the unconditioned that now we will practice that. I want to practice the unconditioned. That's fine. How to make this leap then from the conditioned to the unconditioned? And are we not in the same position that it seems impossible to go from what is conditioned to what is not conditioned? How can we make this jump? But if we inquire a little bit deeper to the way that part, this part is expressed, we'll see that this leap from the unconditioned from the condition to the unconditioned has always already been made. Because our true nature is the unconditioned. Our true nature is not the condition which means that what we are deeply and truly is the unconditioned. Therefore, when one tries to jump from or make this leap from the, the conditioned to the unconditioned, it's senseless because this has been made already. Our true nature is already the unconditioned. So we don't need to make it, to look for it, to make it appear. It's already our true nature. And if it were not the case, if our true nature were conditioned, then there would be, it would be completely meaningless to speak about the unconditioned. If our nature were completely conditioned, there would be no, <coughs> no reaching of any unconditioned. So only if our nature, true nature is unconditioned, is the possibility of reaching the unconditioned. But now, when we stay this way of the conditioned and the unconditioned, and we see that our true nature is the unconditioned, and that all what, that which is conditioned does not truly exist. So there is no, actually, any conditioned. Nothing is really conditioned. So we see that if nothing is really conditioned, how can we speak about the unconditioned? Therefore, there is no condition, neither is there any unconditioned. There is not this opposition between the two. 
and that is expressed in many ways. The great Mahasiddhasana says, from the beginning the samsara never came into existence. Our Long Shempa, the great Dakshin teacher, said, the fool tried to get rid of samsara and tried to reach nirvana. So why does he say the fool? By this attempt to get rid of the condition and try to reach the unconditioned, one just makes stronger the belief in the true nature of the conditioned. By trying to get rid of what we believe is obstacle, what we believe is a samsara, if we need to get rid of it, it means that it is existing. It would not make sense to try to get rid of something which does not exist. So any attempt to be free means that we believe bondage truly exists. And that is just perpetuating the state of confusion, of ignorance. The Tibetan expressed that in an interesting way, the way to if you wish to see from the fruit, see from the aim, or from the unconditioned to see the path, although we see that there is no duality within that, in the tantric tradition it is expressed in this way. They say one take the one take the fruit as the path. One take the aim as the path. And that from this consideration and the reflection on the view that there is no condition and no unconditioned. And that what is the light of our practice. From this non-duality between the condition and the unconditioned, from the non-duality between samsara and nirvana. I quote there the Prajna Paramita text from memory, so it may be not perfectly what it is said. And if there were somewhere something not empty, there could be something empty. He was speaking about emptiness in the form, so I, the text said in the Prajna Paramita, if there were something not empty, so we could speak about the emptiness of something, because it could be empty of something. But if there is nothing which is not empty, how could we speak about the emptiness of anything? It doesn't make sense. Again, this opposition between emptiness and form, believing in either. One of the great yogi of India said that people who cling to true existence are in bondage, but the people who cling to emptiness, then they are in a deeper bondage. one would believe that there would be something to be a characteristic of this emptiness. So no opposition between samsara and nirvana. Between being and not being. In the state which I have described are these vast experience of being or awareness without any notion 
without any center or limit. This is described as the ground of bondage. Ground of bondage in the sense that for the meditator it is still experienced as existing. And whatever is experienced as existing is the ground out of which any kind of other bondage may arise if one believes in the existence of that. So it's like one has been sentenced, but one doesn't know yet in which jail one will be. Therefore, it's just this state of, with all the possibility of bondage where anything could arise there, and that will be taken as truly existing. Because this ground of awareness is experienced as truly existing. So that the meditator will have not to stop there, will have not to grasp at this experience as truly existing. So this aspect of non-duality which is beyond existence and non-existence is illustrated in some stories. One story here is the conversion of Ashwagosha. He was a Hindu teacher, very, very well learned and a very strong logician. And as it was the tradition at this time, maybe the 6th century, he was traveling in north of India and when he would come into a town, he would ask the great scholar of the place and he would debate with them. And the winner of the debate would get all the support from the king and queen and all the disciples of the loser would have to follow the belief of the winner. And sometimes the loser would even be put to death. So to engage in a discussion at this time, that was really a serious matter not just a way of, of spending time. So Asvagosha was traveling all around north of India and in every place where he went, people were very scared. They were scared that he would come and, like in the Buddhist monastery, that if he would come and debate with the abbot of the monastery, if the abbot would lose, then all the monks had to follow the Hindu faith. So he came to Nalanda, the huge Buddhist monastery of the time, and he went to the teacher there and he started to debate with him. So he started to ask questions. This abbot of the monastery had a very strong reputation of being very bright. So he started to debate with him. So he asked questions, but the monk did not answer. And he tried, he tried many times and tried other questions, but this monk just did not speak anymore, any word. So after some time, Ashwagosha was tired and he went away with, I think, 500 of his disciples. I thought, it is hopeless, you have such a reputation of such a bright monk, but you can't even answer the simplest of my question. So he went away, and walking away, he started to think about all the questions he had asked, and then the other argument he tried to bring forth, and he understood that all of those could be defeated, that none had really a strong ground. So he went back to the Buddhist uh, about there and he bowed down to him and said, actually I was mistaken. Because in all what I said, that one could see mistakes. And they knew that there was of course no mistake in the silence of the abode. So he said, well, then <coughs> all his disciples converted to the Buddhist uh, 
religion and he said, as Lagosha said to the, to the abbot, so my head should be cut to be such a foolish, foolish man. And the abbot, of course with much compassion, said, it's not your head which needs to be cut, but your wrong views. So that's one example of expression of what is beyond words. And there is another beautiful account in the story of Bimalakyeti. So Bimalakyeti is a very interesting figure in the Buddhist tradition because he was a layman and he was a, he has all the characteristics of the impossibility. So he kept celibate but he has a wife and many children. So he's always doing something which is not possible, contradictory. But his name, Vimala Kirti, means already Vimala, free from any stain, free from duality. Therefore, he's really the embodiment of non-duality, of not clinging to either side, either emptiness or form, or samsara or nibbana. So at this time, the Buddha is staying in one monastery, and around him are all the most renowned monks and bodhisattva, everybody is here, it's really a beautiful gathering of the most bright people one can imagine. But somebody is missing, is Vimalakyati. He is pretending to be sick in his home, in Vaishali, nearby. So the Buddha, seeing that he is not here, he asked one monk, can you go and, and inquire about Vimalakyati? So why is he not here? But nobody dares to go because everybody is afraid he was so uh, sharp with them that everybody has been ashamed from the remark he made to them so nobody wants to go and so he's asking every monk and every monk is explaining why they can't go and see him like Yeti. and in fact every monk expressed how they get caught in duality so every time they would express and they would explain why they would not go to see Vimalakyati is an expression of how they got caught in duality. One monk who was renowned to go and beg in the town only to the quarter of the poor people because he thought that they should accumulate merit so he would go with his begging ball and only beg in this part of the town. So of course Vimalakyati when he saw this monk begging, then he said that how can you make discrimination between the poor and the rich? How can you, with a mind of duality, how can you go and beg for anything? So many of the monks were caught in grasping to duality and making distinctions. So the only one who dared to go is Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom. He is not afraid to go and see the Malakyati. So he goes there and, <coughs> and meets Vimalakyati, then they have, of course, a beautiful discussion to such a bright people. Manjushri is a Bodhisattva of wisdom, and Vimalakyati is a non-dual one. And their discussion is often very interesting to follow and, not to say, very difficult to follow. So when Manjushri reached there, the first thing he asked to Vimalakyati, he said, How does a Bodhisattva? become a Buddha. Interesting enough for a Bodhisattva. And Vimalakyati says, by following the wrong path, a Bodhisattva becomes a Buddha. It's quite a statement. And then there's a description of the wrong path. 
and obviously it's the wrong path by killing or whatever. So what does Malakati mean there when he says by following the wrong path? He is really the embodiment of non-duality and what he's questioning there is the possibility of following a path. So in a provocative way he said by following the wrong path but in the non-dualistic point of view there is no correct path and wrong path there is no path, there is no action there is no agent, nothing is done therefore he answer by following the wrong path now he asked a few bodhisattvas finally have come to see him to speak about the non-duality what is the non-duality for them so many express different bright ideas about what the non-duality is then finally Manjushri is speaking and he said all your explanations are dualistic to all the other bodhisattvas he said to know no teaching to express nothing to indicate nothing that is the entrance into non-duality so to know no teaching to express nothing to indicate nothing that is the entrance into non-duality then he looked at Vimalakirti and said well what about you? What do you think about non-duality? So can you tell us something about it? And of course, the Malakati doesn't speak a word. Then Manjushri is so happy because he finds this answer fantastic and exactly what he, what he can really uh, relate to. So I, I like to connect this answer of Manjushri just by a sentence by Beckett, which I think is so interesting to see uh, British writer speaking about his writing and I don't think he has met uh, with Vimalakirti and this in some other life but he expressed this way, he said there is nothing to express nothing with which to express no desire to express together with the obligation to express speaking about his writing so I think he could have been among the Vimalakirti's friends there We may believe that it is a very Asian way of speaking about the ultimate truth, this non-dual way, and that there is no path, because there is no aim that will bring duality. Well, we may, if we did inquire into the mystic tradition of the West, we could find statements very similar. I don't have here all the books about the Christian mystics, but as far as I remember, Master Eckhart says, God is a light, God is a light to which there is no access. And St. Augustine said, anything one may say about God is a lie, better to be silent. There will be many expressions in the Christian mystics and other, many other traditions, where we see the same impossibility to conceive of a gradual path leading to something which is beyond cause. But the same difficulty is met in other traditions. It's not something very specifically Buddhist. Doesn't make it less strange. So what does it mean for our practice? In the vulnerable truth, the third truth, the truth of cessation, the truth of nirvana, the truth of our Buddha nature is taught before the path, before one starts to practice. It is because from this light or from this understanding, which is not a full realization, 
but from this understanding that may bring light to our way of practicing. Not practicing clinging to an aim, not practicing with grasping, but already bringing this quality of non-expectation, non-grasping, non-grasping to any experience in our practice itself. In the experience which I have described as this pure sense of presence, which is not a bad state, which is a state that may arise when the meditation is quiet and going well. It's not a mistake of the meditation. The mistake will be to believe that it is the aim. That will be mistaken. But if one were to practice um, quietly with a good awareness, then one will reach such a state and not cling to it. And not clinging to it, then one will not cling to either existence or non-existence to samsara or nirvana. So it's not a, a wrong way of practicing, it's just that one doesn't cling to any experience, even this experience which seems so vast and so clear. The way it is expressed in the text, in the Mahamudra text, in the Dzogchen text, says that the mind is clear and knowing and has no true existence. It has no true existence and is clear and knowing. Since we are using language, it seems that we always need to balance one with the other. Because when we say something, there is no true existence, the tendency would be to believe that nothing is there. So to balance that we said, but it's clear and knowing, then the tendency will be to believe that something exists. So we need to balance that, because that is the sphere of language. When the realization comes, when it is clear, there is no sense of being this or that. That only belongs to the sphere of concept. So we have seen that we may consider the path from the aim, so to speak, and think that there were no aim and no path. It doesn't mean that there is no time for us in our practice where we will not practice from the conditioned point of view. All our practice of Tonglen, accepting self for others, and all those practices are based on the relative point of view because that's still most of, of the time what we believe in. We believe in this uh, on the conditioned state, we believe in causality. Therefore, we practice in this way the appropriated practice of meditation slowly with the clarity of the view, then this practice will not be clinged to as having any true existence. For example, the practice of giving, which is a very practical act with a causality, with an object, a subject, something is given from one person to the other. Then when the view starts to practice that, or if you wish, somebody who is not confused anymore, then there is no sense of a giver, of somebody who is receiving, and something which is given. And at this time, the act of Giving is still practice, but there is no sense of true existence in any aspect of the action or the object of subject. So we may still practice the act of giving, even if now we still believe in the true existence of the giver, what is, which is giving, and the people receiving. And slowly, by the deepening of the view, then the reality, the belief in the true reality of that will go away. Yet the action is still a proper action. It will be very misleading to believe that since we may be believing to follow no path 
and just to abide beyond conditioning and unconditioning, then we can do whatever we want because we don't believe in causality. That, of course, will be very much mistaken. When Vimalakheti finally he has met the people who came to inquire about his health, so he walked with them to the monastery where the Buddha is staying. So Vimalakheti, this embodiment of non-duality, so what is he going to do in front of the Buddha when he pretended that following the wrong path is the way to become a Buddha? So he makes reprocession. He makes prostration in front of the Buddha. He respects causality. It doesn't mean that he believes the Buddha is truly existing. He is truly existing. Yet his action is an action respecting morality, respecting causality. So that's a very important aspect when one speaks about the view. beyond duality, the danger is always that some people may believe that there is no causality for us anymore, therefore we can do anything. And in a sense, if those teachings were not always taught or very carefully, it was specifically because of this mistake. Some people may just, we may imagine some monk in, in Tibet, for example, then just not respecting the rules of the monk anymore because they don't believe in causality. Well, and some people may have at sometimes liked not to believe in reality or threatened not to believe in reality. And that was a danger. I think it is interesting to see that in other traditions we find the same question. In other mystical traditions, they always it's always mentioned that people may misunderstand that and not respect anymore the behavior and the relationship with others. So that's very important. If you have doubt, remember Vimalakirti coming to the Buddha and making reconciliation as a beautiful sign of respecting the law of causality. So we practice from both approach, the view becoming deeper, in our practice, therefore, we will let cling to the sense of true existence, of causality, of true causality. Yet, in our practice, we also develop relative practice with Tonglen and all other practice, respecting the, the law of the heart, for example. Those two approaches found in the Tibetan tradition, the most skillful way to develop oneself spiritually. So we'll just stay a few minutes inside. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.